just last evening, right behind that wall there, I signed a marriage license. And I wrote January 6, 2018. This morning I wrote a check. Susan, you need to know this. A big check to honor God with worship today. It's going to change the course of our church. And I wrote January 7, 2018. We've got to get used to this, right? We've got to get used to a new year. And it's always clumsy at the beginning of the year just to know what year it is, to know which way is up and what you're supposed to be doing, what you're supposed to be about. And with the new year, honestly, the calendar is a human construction and it doesn't mean anything in our hearts unless we do business in our hearts. And this, um, this morning, this year, we're going to kick off this 2018 with this sermon series called The, the Invite And I want you to picture in these weeks, God's arms open wide, inviting those who feel lost. And lost theologically, lost according to scripture, is a destination, sin, hell, and death. But it's not just a destination, it's a condition. And I hope that we will open ourselves up to him this morning, this month, even this year. To see this great invitation. To see the heart of God who deeply cares for the lost. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for a new morning. Lamentations 3 makes the declaration that your mercies are new every morning. Lord, while we slept, while we slumbered, while we were in some level of deep REM sleep or half awake, struggling, tossing and turning. God, you don't sleep or slumber. You are not feeble and frail and human and you do not have our limits. And you watch over and you are sovereign. You are sovereign even when we doubt it. You are sovereign when we just don't seem to understand it. You are sovereign when Things seem so out of control. And God, we, we, we're a people who long for new starts. We tell our friends and we post it and we write it in journals and we put it on notes. These ideas, these reminders that you would bring change in us. But truly, it's just 17 turning to 18. It's just a page and flipping over in a calendar. Unless, Lord, unless we are people committed to you doing your work in us. And God, I, I know you have a word for us today. Lord, I know you do. A word that will teach us more about your heart, about what, God, you are really like. And as the context of the story will tell us, Lord, it's religious people that miss it. It's self-righteous. It's the bored. It's the ones who yawn that go through the motions. So, Lord, I pray for people here today. I pray for Fondren Church. I pray for your spirit to do a fresh work. Lord, you're a God 
of the invite. And your invite is the greatest invitation ever. Lord, I pray that you help us to see that your heart is for lost people. And Lord, may that be true of our church. As we look at coins and sheep and sons and daughters and banquets and excuses and seeds and soil, may we see more and more of who you are and what you're really like. This we pray in Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I would love for you to turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 15. Luke 15, in a moment, we'll read it. And, of course, you know it'll be uh, up on the screen. I have a question for you as we begin this series, The Invite. And the question is, have you ever lost something that you love? Can you remember the panic, possibly? The terror? Can you remember the unease, the anxiety, the, the, just the sense of mission that propelled you forward to find what is lost? Many, many years ago when our three kids were, were smaller and our youngest was really small, Wesley was a one nap a day dude and he was taking this, on this particular day, was taking that one nap with me. We were on the couch Sunday afternoon. Preachers are called by God to take a nap on Sunday afternoon. And so we just snuggled together. Mom was having some much needed me time, I learned. So there we were napping on the couch and when I woke up, I did not see my little buddy. Where's Wesley? Forget where's Waldo. Where's Wesley? And I called out and didn't hear him. I went to his room and didn't see him. I went to every room. I could not find him. I went outside to the front, to the back, to both sides. I could not find him. I checked the trampoline. There was a tarp that was kind of packed pretty high. And I thought maybe he fell. He's behind. I looked for him. I went to the Brown's house. He wasn't there. I went to the Freeman's house. He wasn't there. I went to the Focolati's. He wasn't there. We were on one of those little cul-de-sacs in Hidden Hills out in the reservoir where we all knew and loved each other like one big family. He wasn't at the Brown's or the Freeman's or the Focolati's. And I called and I called. I went back to the house and it was a search mission at this point. Uh, he was lost. And I got into my truck and I made the block. And I wondered, should I call Susan? Should I enlist the help of neighbors? I was a, starting to need oxygen. And I called out to him, and lo and behold, the little rascal walks out of a home that was under construction. His head was down, and I was kind of dealing with both. There was that part of me of like, you rascal, why didn't you come to me? Why didn't you come out when you heard your dad scream your name? But the much bigger part of me was, come here and let me hug you. You are okay. You are fine. This is good. We won't tell mom that this happened. <laughs> Maybe we'll tell her years later in a church, in a sermon, with lots of people around where it's safe, right? But if you have ever lost someone that you love, you know that you'll do anything to find them and almost nothing else matters until you do. And we see these stories, we're going to look at them in January, I hope you'll be here or listen online, but we're going to look uh, today at two, uh, two parts of a trilogy that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. One of them is insanely famous, uh, arguably uh, the one of the most famous stories in all the world. But here we see in this trilogy a lost, a lost sheep, a, a lost coin, and a lost son. And there is, um, the math is sort of funny as we'll look at it in a minute. It seems to say, Jesus seems to say in his story that he cares for one more than 99. Who wants to follow a God who cares about one more than 99? That's just some messed up math, isn't it? 
But he uses a bit of hyperbole, but yet it's so heartfelt and it's so important for the church to understand this message because we get it wrong. We gravitate toward the 99. But in this math that I found interesting as I studied it this week, we see sort of this progression. We see the story of the lost sheep, that there's one sheep that goes outside of the fold. In other words, there's 99 there. That's just 1%. And then in the story of the lost coin, there's a woman who loses a coin. She had 10. She lost one. That's 10%. And then there's a dad who lost a son to rebellion. He had two sons. He lost one. That's 50%. You see how it gets a little more... Uh, major. It, it, it's just more involved and there's more at stake as Jesus tells this trilogy of stories. The crescendo, of course, is the lost son. But I want us to look this morning at Luke chapter 15. We'll look at verses 1 through 10. If your Bible is open, that's great. If not, look here on the screen in the ESV. Y'all ready? Say ready. That's cool. All right. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Do you see the sarcasm that Jesus is using? You see there's religious people. Man, there's no joy rejoicing. But heaven's going nuts because of one. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's not a lot of difficulty in understanding the basics of this passage. Wouldn't you agree? In fact, a lot of you probably have heard this, these parables before. What you see in the story, this trilogy, is you see common language. You see something lost and there's a search and then you see it culminates in a celebration in all three stories. And we see some important contrast. But as we dig a little deeper in the moments that we have, I ask you the question, why does Jesus tell this story? He closes Luke 14 with this phrase, he who has ears to hear let him hear. Our God is very concerned about who is really listening. Do you realize that discernment is important? Perception really matters. For us to seek and unearth what really is important, what's major, what's transformative, we have to be people who really do listen. And to listen, we have to attune our ears. And you notice the contrast, it's implicit. There are people who listen, but they don't really hear. Their senses are dulled. And we see this contrast. We see a contrast between scribes and Pharisees and tax collectors and sinners. Now, who do you want to be? Who are you? Don't answer. The person next to you probably knows. But there's the contrast, and it is a stark, very stark contrast between the scribes and Pharisees, between the tax collectors and sinners. 
But I want, you, I want to put this in context for you. Who was listening to Jesus? You saw it, didn't you? It was the tax collectors and sinners. They were drawing near to him, the scripture tells us. Now, we don't know ex- the exact, exact lo- location of this trilogy of parables. We know the general region, but not the precise location. But what's important is they wanted to be with him. Anybody have a big dog? What does a big dog want to do? Somebody asked me today, hey, does your golden retriever, is he inside dog or outside dog? That's a stupid question. Like, he's where I am, right? If I'm outside, he wants to be outside. If I'm inside, he wants to be outside. He goes outside just enough to pee. If I'm inside, he runs right back to me, right? He wants to be with me. Dogs want to be with their owners. Don't you know that? And here is this group of tax collectors. What a strange juxtaposition. We get the dog owner thing, but sinners, tax collectors, those who were looked down upon, those were the very people that were drawing near to him. But the scribes and Pharisees, what did the scripture say? You saw it. It says what? They grumbled. They were threatened. They didn't like it. And we see the context of this going back a little bit. We see that the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, those very religious people, the uptight legalist, they had a phrase for the tax collectors and sinners. They were known as the people of the land or people of the earth. And this was particularly a, a statement or phrase of derision and mockery back in the days of Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah when they led Jerusalem back out of their 70 years of exile in Babylonian captivity back into their capital. And there they they, the, the, the godly, the remnant sought to restore and fortify the city there. And they were met with uh, some opposition, some resistance with the mixed race inhabitants. And so you began to get classes of people. Imagine that. You had the, the purebred Jewish people and you had the mixed breeds known as the Samaritans and the Gentiles. And these were the people of the land. So you had on one side the pure breeds, the devout religious people, and you had, you had on one side the people of the land. And one, on one side they would look over and they would say, you, you're unclean and you're unworthy, you're not pure. And the other, the, those folks, the people of the land, would look and yell across to the other side, you are religious hypocrites. And I say today in 2018 that nothing has changed, it seems. Right? Two different camps yelling across the tracks at what divides. And it is into this, it is into this that Jesus comes. And into this, Jesus tells these stories. And some of them were listening to him. And some of them grumbled about it. And he wanted to make a point. He wanted to say that you know the law. You keep the law and you're clean living, law abiding, nice looking, purebred citizens. But you're missing. You don't understand what God is really like. Could that be true of us? Could it be true of Mississippians? Could it be true of you and your family, your mama and them? That there could be a life of church attendance? of occasional Bible reading, a background of Sunday school and participation in religious clubs and organizations, campus ministries, but we really miss what God is like. We know we've lost a cultural war, but what about this war for our heart, for your soul, for your destiny, for your eternity? And in this, we see what God is really like. This is why Jesus tells the story. 
Because the tax collectors and sinners, they were drawing near to him. But the scribes and Pharisees, they grumbled. Luke, Dr. Luke, the great physician who writes this account of the life of Jesus, he would say prior to this in Luke chapter 7 that Jesus came eating and drinking. He was known as a glutton and a drunk, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Some of you want to use that verse as an opportunity to party and act like a fool on Saturday night. Don't do that, okay? Don't do that. Don't make me preach, okay? But just don't do that. But it is important without falling down some embankment of moral trouble, it's important to realize who was drawn to Jesus and who wasn't. And Jesus employs sarcasm by saying the righteous, those who don't need repentance. Now, who needs repentance? Jesus would teach in John 8 that whoever sins is a slave to sin. Do you believe that? You are kind of shaking your head because like preacher said, Jesus said it, so I'm going to go with it. But do you believe that? Like, do you believe that? That he who sins is a slave to sin. Isaiah, long before Jesus would say, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Isaiah 53. It's so true. It is so true. Who needs repentance? Everybody. All of us. And if we don't see that, we miss the heart of God. Who's unclean and who is unworthy? Every one of us. Every one of us needs to repent, but there's no joy and no rejoicing in people who don't know they're lost. I look back many, many years ago. A young man, he's a young man now. He's 13. He's becoming a man. And when he was lost those years ago and I needed oxygen and all that last, that was about a 10-minute occurrence. But after five minutes, man, it was like serious. And the rejoicing when I found my guy, that's what heaven is like. That's what God is like. That's the God we serve. I just want to give you two things in the, in the remainder of our time that we can learn from this story. This story, these parables, is where we get our why. Now, we live in a culture obsessed with how. Do you get that? Like, we're obsessed with how. How to be happy, how to lose weight, how to shed stubborn belly fat. Sorry if this is hits close to home. How to, how to get a house, how to flip a house, how to raise a child, how to flip a child. Like we have all these how-tos and bookstores and information on the internet and all the pop-up ads are filled with how. How to do this, how you can do this. But so little of the information at bookstores and pop-up ads and on the internet has to do with why. But I want to tell you men and women, boys and girls, there's only one why that's great enough to move you forward. There is only one why that's big enough to get you through all of your hows and to make sense of all your hows. Why? Why do I do what I do? Why do I do the things that I don't want to do? Why do I not do the things that I made a New Year's resolution about that I said I would do? Why do I feel the way I do? Why do I just knock it out and knock it out and try so hard and do the same thing? What I did today, I will do tomorrow. I will rinse and repeat. Why am I the way that I am? And in this story, Jesus gives us the why. It's where we get it. The man who told this story was the man who offers the invitation, come and follow me. 
the greatest invitation ever offered to humankind. The most transformational one. The most important one. Come, come and follow me. And what did he say? He made a promise. He didn't say you'd feel good all the time. He didn't say you got to do all these things like the religious people do. What did he say? Come and follow me and what? Anybody know it? Okay. I will make you fishers of men. You will become. It's not so much what you do. That's important. It's not so much what you believe. That's also important. But I'm going to turn you into something and you will become fishers of men. You will have your wife. Come and follow me. You'll be undone by grace. You'll be healed by mercy. You will be drawn to an eternal, not temporal vision that is so compelling. You will follow me and you will become my apprentices. You will go and you will make disciples. Jesus does not say, go and make Christians. You know how often Christian is mentioned in the New Testament? Anybody? There's a right answer to this. A couple of times. A couple of times it's referenced as Christians, but disciples 269 times. Learn from me. The Greek word there is learner. Not learner like we've thought about in Western civilization because we're learners where we'll go and take a class, we'll memorize stuff or get a cheat sheet, and through rote memorization or application, we'll, we'll put it on the test and we'll get a good grade and then we'll walk away and go, Phew. I passed the class or I got what I needed and we don't really do anything about it. That's learning so often in Western culture. But in the Greek culture, in the Roman culture of Jesus' day, learning, this, this word disciple, it's equated with what you're doing and what you're becoming. A heart orientation. You guys in a small group? Hope you'll consider if you're not, if you're in a bad one, get in a good one. If you can't find a good one, start one. We'll help you. But in groups, groups typically gravitate toward a seminary class, right? You got a really good teacher, and they make you know you fill in the blanks, and there's a lot of study, and they got some homework, right? That's not ever my small group, but some groups are like that, and it's like a seminary class. And other groups can gravitate toward like a therapy session, where people just all they do, they never never crack the book, never look at the word. It's not a Bible study; it's a help each other with their problems. Usually, one person's problem, right? And it's just it, it could gravitate toward a therapy session. But the call of Jesus is not a seminary class or a therapy session. It's somewhere in the middle where we're ordering our hearts. Yes, we're informing our minds, but we're ordering our hearts. And as the Greek says, the Greeks used to say in Jesus' day, when our hearts are right, our feet will be swift. We are called to make disciples, to follow him, to become fishers of men. And we become something in the process. And we learn, and the church has gotten so off track theologically and politically and culturally but we are called to feed the hungry to love the lonely and to serve the forgotten we are to be his apprentices many years ago we had a group of college kids of boys and girls men and women at our house in Coral Gables Florida where we live we did campus ministry at the University of Miami and th this one particular night there was a, a young lady a college uh, junior who came to me and she said, Mr. Green, this is toward the end of the night, she said, Mr. Green, uh, I lost my necklace. It fell down the bathroom sink and it's probably in the drain. And I know, I know that you can't fix it. So if it's okay, I, I've called my dad and he's willing to come over and he knows you can't, he knows you can't find it. So he's willing to come over and find my, my piece of jewelry, my necklace for me, if that's okay with you. And I obviously was offended 
by this young girl. And I went to the next room and I made a phone call to a friend who lived down the street, was out of town. And I said, man, can you help me? I want to find this necklace. It's in the bathroom sink. Is any chance I could do this with your help? He said, knowing you, Robert, probably not, but let, go in there. I'll walk you through this. You listen and you learn from me. He said, go to the bathroom. I did. He said, look at the sink. I did. He said, you'll see some doors under the sink. They were there. He said, open those cabinet doors. I did. He said, you'll see pipes and plumbing underneath the sink. And y'all, I mean, like, it was like he was there with me. Like, I got chills. I've never had this happen before. And so he coached me through. I listened and I learned I was being an apprentice. But I had to listen to him and I had to learn from him. And to get this girl's necklace, I had to do what he said. Now, it took me a lot longer. He told me to get down under. I needed a couple of tools. And he told me to twist the pipes underneath this cabinet sink and to put a water pail under there and that I would be able to trace it. If I was patient and skillful enough, I'd be able to trace it and that it would come out. And you know, it took me a lot longer than most humans. But the necklace came out. And I handed it to this young girl and said, I don't need your father. <laughs> the kingdom... Of heaven to what is the kingdom of heaven likened to it's like a woman who loses her necklace and when it is found she calls her friends and her family and what does she do she rejoices by the way incidentally just in parentheses do you see how rich the scripture is about community it's like never about just you ever it's always like when do you rejoice by yourself you, you can but you really can't like when we rejoice, we rejoice together. You know, we, we, you, you need people to rejoice with you. And that is at the heartbeat of Christianity. What is God like when something is lost? Y'all, he really cares. He cares. And he's a God of rejoicing. What is God like? We see a couple of things here. We see that we get our why. And let me say this. Understand. Understand spiritual life. Understand the human condition. Understand that some of you are here today out of obligation or it's a New Year's resolution or someone invited you and you came and you're unsure. But listen to me. We serve a Savior with a message that is revolutionary. It's the only great why in the world. It's the only why that can get you through your house. And But this why is all about becoming an apprentice. Go and make Christians? No. 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 There's people all over the world. You know that, right? The commandment is not go and make Christians. It's go and make disciples. Go and make people that can see their life change and they would in turn experience it and express it. And they, you and I, we would become his apprentices. But in order to do so, we must listen to him. He's got to walk us through it. We listen to him and we must do what he says. And that perhaps is the great breakdown in your spiritual life. That could be. It may not, it may not be my fault. It may not be Fondren Church's fault. It may not be the church that you came from. It may not be mom and them's fault. It may not be the ministry. It may not be. It, it may not be. 
It may be that you're hearing the words of Jesus half-heartedly. Or when you hear them, you do not do what he says. But he wants us to listen to his voice because we have so much to learn. And when we do what he says, we find our way. The second thing beyond just how we, we get our why, we find our why in this, is we get to see the heart of heaven. Listen to me. I said it earlier. I think it was at the outset in the prayer maybe, but the, 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 the pull of the church is toward the 99. And what does that mean? Does that mean anything to anybody? We care about our comfort. We care about our stuff. And I, honestly, I think some of the conversations and things that church folks talk about are so far from the heart of God. Even our singing and our songs, it matters not unless justice rolls like a river, unless we leave this place, Amos chapter 5, and we go and we do something about it. And every time we do something about it, we're making the world a better place. This isn't a life insurance policy. This isn't us versus them, and we have somewhere to go when we die. This is about, Lord, make your will come on earth as it is in heaven. That we would be fishers of men. That we would draw lost people out. And we serve a God. What is God's job? We get this confused. A whole lot of us get this confused. I do at times. It is God's job to do the pursuing and the saving. And it is our job to do the admitting and the confessing and the repenting. We ask and it is a gift. What does God do when he saves? Who are the lost? It is a destination. I love you enough to tell you that. I love you enough to tell you that it's a destination and it is a condition. And into this condition, the grace of God, it finds the lost. It finds us and it forgives us and it frees us. If you're not free, you have missed Jesus. I didn't say problem free. Because the most inspiring people, I'm, I'm right about this, the most inspiring people that we know are people that they're in the middle of some stuff. Like, I don't want their stuff. Man, they're going through something. Like, I wonder if I was them, if I could make it through. But there's a freedom there. A freedom in the middle of it. And that's the heart of God. The heart of heaven is that he finds and he forgives and he frees. He pursues us. There's the adulterous woman trapped in her shame. There's the tax collector named Zacharias, who's, who is, Zacchaeus, I'm sorry, who is, uh, he's in the grip of greed. There's this religious leader named Nicodemus who's blinded by his own self-righteousness. Could that be you? There is a Pharisee named Saul who can't do anything to overcome the anger that is inside of him. Lost people are found. 80 years ago, a hopeless drunk who hit bottom became known to America as Bill W. He was hopeless and he was desperate a terrible addiction to alcohol put him in jail. He was hospitalized four times. His means of making a living was over. The doctors told his wife, Lois, that she had three options. He could go to jail. She could watch him go insane or let him die. And in this moment of desperation 80 years ago, Bill W. 
found a man. The man found him and invited him into a group known as the, at the time as the Oxford Group. And this group was a group of followers of Jesus who were intentionally committing themselves to the practices of Jesus. To honest self-examination, to confession, to restitution, to humble service, to the realization that your life is not your own, that nothing is beyond the impossibility of his reach of his hand. Bill W.'s life was saved and it was altered. And it started with an invitation. Many of you know, some of you know, know, that AA has 12 steps patterned from the 12 disciples. Jesus chose 12. To change their life. And the twelve were chosen by invitation. This thing called sin, it is so real. We live with this illusion of our independence. I'm not, we don't say it, but deep, deep down we make a decision somewhere along the way. I'm not going to obey God, I'm going to play God. And in this life of autonomy of self-management, of do-it-yourself life and religion and philosophy, we so often wreck it. And idols and addictions just make a, to quote Jonathan Edwards, just the, it's just a factory in our hearts producing what pulls us away. And here's what I want to say. I want to say what the Bible says about sin. And the Bible says sin is this baffling, mysterious, cunning force listen to me that's bigger than me and it is bigger than you and it gets inside of you and it affects you it alters your habits it affects how you respond to people it changes how you view your stuff and life itself I was with a group of men at a lake house Friday night and before we started talking about the direction and the health of our church we talked about our own hearts let the words, the psalmist, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in my sight. Do you ever pray that prayer? We talked about our hearts and we confessed some sin. And you know what we did? We did what a lot of you do. We kind of confessed respectable sins, right? We got a little bit deep. But I know every man and I know this man can always go deeper. I opened up Mark chapter 7. I don't have it in front of me. Mark chapter 7 verses 21 and 22. And Jesus talked about how uh, what comes out comes from within. And the religious, clean, living, law-abiding citizens, the Pharisees and the scribes, the, those elite people, the purebreds, they were always focused on the externals. And Jesus said, man, life, your life will be determined by what is inside, your interior soul. And you have to guard your heart. You have to clean it from contaminants and pollution and what dilutes it and what does. And Jesus lists some things, adultery, sexual immorality, drunkenness, envy. He lists some stuff. And I told this man Friday night, like, man, we have to be careful ourselves. I'm going to say it. I say it often. Some of you may roll your eyes, but evil, I want to tell you, the scripture teaches us, it's not just out there. It's in here. 
These stories were told from religious people who missed God, who didn't understand what God was really like, who thinks God cares about the 99 and it's really the one. He cares about the one who knows that they need him. He cares about the one that turns back to him. This morning, would you consider your life? Would you consider your heart? Would you pray for our church? If you're a guest, just hang in for a few minutes. If this is your church, would you pray for it? That we would be a church gripped by this invitation. That we would more and more become apprentices. That we would want to be disciples of Jesus, listening to him and learning from him. Why do we need stories of 80 years ago? How about today? How about today that God would grip us, some women and some men, to say we want to return. We don't want to follow trends and fads and adopt best ideas and practices from all the churches and Christian rock star pastors. Like We want to be who God has called us to be. And we'll only be healthy to the extent that we orient our hearts to him, that we have been lost and that he has found us and that his grace finds us, it forgives us, and it frees us. I shared it with the Christmas Eve crowd and apparently somebody really needed it. I got one of the greatest emails I have ever received. But no one has gone too far. No one has sinned too greatly. No one is in too deep. No one is beyond his grasp. We have to see that church. As our team comes forward, John Mark is going to come forward. And I've asked him, as we kind of adopt a posture of prayer, I've asked him to sing a song over us. This is one of those rare moments where we say, listen, don't sing. You can if you want. I can't stop you. But I want you to hear the words of this song. And I want you to think about being found. I don't want you to consider a God who cares about the one more than the 99. And that there is rejoicing in heaven. Do you see God as a God who rejoices? Look at Isaiah 62, 5. This is God. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Zephaniah, I bet you didn't read that this morning. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will what? He will rejoice over you with what? With gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I'm so glad that God is the great shepherd. Now, let me be honest. Let me be sound theologically. I'm called to shepherd Fondren Church. For as long as I'm here, I'm one of the shepherds. I'm not the chief shepherd, but I'm one of the shepherds. And if you're on staff, if you're an elder, if you're a deacon, if you lead a group, if you sign up, you're, you're in essence, you are a fellow shepherd. And we are to go after those who are lost. We are to bind up the weak. We are to enfold those who are outside the circle. We're to heal those and bind up the brokenhearted. That's the role of a shepherd, to feed the flock and to teach and to protect it from hungry wolves. And when one gets outside of the fold, we go in love to win and woo them back. 
But I'm glad I'm not the chief shepherd because I would mess Jesus' story up. When I got that rascal of a sheep back, I mean, because it's a sheep, I would say, you know, I wouldn't be happy. You see, the God in Jesus' story is happy, not angry. I'd be a little angry. I would say, you sheep, what were you thinking? Didn't you know the path was narrow? The, the cliff was steep? Didn't you know the countryside was filled with wolves? What were you thinking? And I'd be a little angry. And I say to you as we close this morning that for some of you, that's the very home that you grew up in. You were caught doing wrong. The authority is angry at you. And you were caught outside the fold. It's not God. Maybe your dad. Maybe a bad dad. Maybe a dad who did the best he could. Maybe a mama. But it's not the heart of God. There's this shepherd that says, to all who admit and confess, to all say, I need to be found, no matter what it is. And I want to say to you that I know that there are some of you that you are living with such a great weight of a sin. And you're living with it quietly. And it is killing you. And others don't know, but you know, they kind of know and they're starting to find out and you're living with the specter of that and it is looming and it is large and sin is inside of you. What do we say? It's mysterious and it's baffling and it's cunning and it's bigger than you. And let me tell you something. No matter how big you are, you're not big enough. You're not. So I don't know what happens today. I don't know if anything can happen today, but I'm just telling you God is for you. He, he pursues you. He saves you. He wants you to find him. It's pretty cool to be found, isn't it? Not if an angry person finds you. Anybody want to be found by an angry person? Judgment upon judgment? But what do we sing sometimes? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Would you in this moment... Pray. And would you listen as this song is sung?